Messiah. Now, obviously, as we've gone through this book, we have seen over and over and over again Jesus prove who he is, right? We have seen him do miracles. We have seen him do healings. We have seen his power and authority over the wind and the waves. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal uh, sicknesses and blindness and, and even raise someone from the dead. We've seen all of these things. And then last week, we took a look at the transfiguration in which God just speaks from heaven and tells the disciples who were gathered there, listen to this guy because he is my son. So there, there should be no doubt at this point about who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one who would, who would come, that he is in authority, that he is powerful. There, there shouldn't be any question left. So why then do we have yet another healing, yet another miracle, yet another casting out of a demon? Do you, do you ever read through the Gospels and you're going through and it just seems like, well, why are we seeing this again and again and again? Okay, thank you. At least one of you thinks the way that I do at least a little bit. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that you're getting bored with it, but it just seems so repetitive. Why over and over and over again would we see all of these miracles? I mean, it, it makes sense in the first half of the book because it was proving exactly who Jesus is. And we, we saw over and over and over again, it proved Jesus is the Messiah. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. That is who he is. But then, why do we have this episode here? What, what's going on with this? And, and I want to encourage you, as you read through Scripture, don't let it become boring. Don't let it become something that, that you don't pay attention to. Because each thing that is recorded is there for a purpose. And God wanted us to understand certain things about who he is, how he operates, what he's got going on, something by each of these episodes that he records for us. And so, yes, this one has a few things about it in which it seems like, okay, there's, there's another demon that has to be cast out and Jesus is the only one who's able to do it. We're proving who Jesus is. And yet, as we get into this, we're going to find there's a few things that are different that don't happen in other places that seem kind of odd that, that wait a minute, why is this happening? So I want to encourage you, really, every time that you read Scripture, but as you look at this situation of what's going on, that you would consider it not as a continuation of the same thing, but recognizing that there's, there's a reason that God included this in his Scripture and that he wants us to learn something from this. Now, I've got a question. That, that's kind of my just in general thought. But I've got a question as we start digging into this. What do you do when you have no clue what to do? When you, when you run into a brick wall, it's like, what am I supposed to do now? What do you do? Okay, okay. That's a good answer. That, that's what I would call the Sunday school answer. <laughs> okay. Be I, I, I love the Sunday school answer, and, and don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think that it's wonderful when we, when we have on the tip of our tongue the right answer. This is what you ought to do. And I would encourage you, maybe I'm not trying to accuse you, but I, I would encourage you to think about, is that actually what I do? 
Hmm. What, what about if it's something that I've gone through over and over and over and over again, and, and what I've always tried just doesn't work this time? What if it's a new situation? Never saw this one coming before. And all of a sudden, boom. What, what is your reaction? Someone mentioned they, they sit there. And just, sometimes it can be overwhelming. Sometimes, I mean, different people have different, different responses, different things. I, I saw your hand. Go ahead. What? Well, I also, I also will ask someone I trust for advice. Okay. You'll go to, go to someone else and, and try and get some advice. You'll, I, I do hope and I, I, I do expect that we would pray. Sometimes it's, it becomes normal for us the, when everything else we've tried fails, that's when we pray. I don't know if anybody else is guilty of it, but I run into that sometimes. Sometimes it's the first thing we do. Obviously, that's the right answer, and we've just sung about prayer. We, we know where this passage is going because we, we read through it, and we find that out. But, you know, sometimes I think we need to, to pause and think back and consider what do I actually do and how can I do that correctly? How can I do that better? Now, I, I know I'm, I'm front-loading a lot right here. We already know what the end of the story is. We already know what's, what's coming. And, and we're going to get to how are we supposed to uh, respond to different things. But as we dig through this passage, I want you to look at, there's, there's three different people involved here, or, or groups of people, that are going to have a little bit different of responses and different actions and different things that they say. And I want you to, to kind of think about, okay, what do they do when they're faced with these significant problems that come up? There, there's one in particular that we're going to be looking at, and that's a, a demon-possessed individual. And how are they going to respond to this? Now, before we get to that, we do have to take a look at the situation or the setting of what's going on. That's the first couple of verses, starting off in 14. It says, when they came back. Who came back? Okay. Jesus and his three disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. Where did they come back from? Okay, they had been up on the, the high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, we don't know exactly which one that is, and it really doesn't matter. There, there's some discussion and, and debate about it, but when they, when they come off of this mountain, they get down, and it says that they saw what? A large crowd, or a great crowd. This, this is one of those things, if you take any time to read through Mark, you're going to find over and over and over and over again, pretty much anywhere that Jesus goes, a great crowd just materializes, appears. Sometimes they're out in the desert, out in the wilderness, out away from towns, and great crowds come and show up. And then they find out that they don't have any food, and it's been three days, and Jesus does what he does and feeds them, takes care of them, because he has compassion on them. And so... Other times, when he's going through or near towns, he, it's so packed, there are so many people that they they're fill the house that he's staying in and end up standing outside, and, and they're so pressed upon each other that there's a little bit of fear that, that they might even be crushed 
at times. And so at one point, Jesus got out onto a boat and he stood there and was preaching from the boat as well. You, you recall, there's been a lot of different ones. We could go through the entire book and point to different times in which the crowd appears, but starting back in uh, chapter one and all the way through, these crowds keep appearing. They keep coming up. They keep being a part of this. And so there's nothing really surprising about the fact that there's a large crowd that has appeared. What does become a little bit unusual in this setting, in this situation, is the fact that there are also some scribes who are there. Now, we've seen the scribes before. These are the religious leaders of the day. We, we know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and just all of these different groups. And the scribes, they were the ones who wrote. That's, that's what their, their title is. They were the ones who were able to write. They were also the ones who were able to read God's word. So, you would think that these guys would know the scriptures, right? That, that's their job. That's their responsibility. Oftentimes when we see them, however, they're not shown in the nicest of lights. They, they tend to have some issues. And in this instance, there are some scribes that are arguing with the disciples. Now, one thing about this, this passage, as you go through it, you're going to see a lot of uh, pronouns that are used. He, to them, to they, to this group and that group. And it, it's a little bit challenging to, to keep track of who are we talking about in each one. Uh, I am aware of that. I realize it. So it's good to slow down as you read through and make sure, okay, when they, that's the disciples, came back to the other disciples, they, that's the original group who was up on the mountain, saw a large crowd around them. Well, who's the them? That's the, the other disciples. The nine, there's, there's the three that were up on the mountain and the nine, and also some scribes. And the scribes are who was arguing with the nine disciples. So they were having this little bit of a, a debate, an argument that was going on. And Jesus gets back, and as he's walking up, the whole crowd stops paying attention to the argument and runs over to see Jesus. It says that the entire crowd saw him and they were amazed. They were in awe. Now, this one's kind of strange in, in Mark. I told you there's a lot that's very, very similar, but this one's a little bit strange. Normally, when the crowd is amazed or in awe, it's after he has done something. And this time, it's before he has done something. And so that, that seems a little bit strange or odd that, um, that they are already in awe of Jesus. Now, some people have looked at that and said, oh, well, it's because he came off the mountain and he's still glowing like Moses was in the Old Testament. Except we don't really have any indication that that's what's going on. We don't see that. And in fact, if you remember from last, the last section, Jesus told his disciples, don't go spreading this. Don't make a big deal out of this. So I don't think that that's what's, what's going on. As I began digging into this, this phrase that they were amazed, this idea, we, we see that there's a level of turmoil that's associated with it. So not, not just that they were in awe, but also that they could have been um, a little bit in distress type of an idea. That, that something wasn't set right. And so when they run to Jesus, there's, there's a little bit of a, a concern type of an idea. They are in awe of him, but there's a level of, of distress that's going on or trouble that's associated with this word as well. It's, it's like um, on water, instead of being nice and calm, everything's in turmoil. There's a little bit of, of turmoil going on. 
Now, that's not to say that they were afraid of anything or that they were scared of what's going on, but simply that, that the crowd is not at peace. Well, I can understand that because the scribes and the disciples have been arguing about something. We're about to find out what that was. As well as the situation that they're dealing with, there's a big problem going on. Now, Mark hasn't told us what that is yet, but there is this huge problem that's happening. And so when Jesus arrives, he, Jesus, asks them, probably referring back to the scribes, what are you guys arguing about? What's, what's the argument? So the, the crowd is a bit in turmoil. The, the scribes and nine of the disciples are having an argument. Jesus comes off the mountain from this great and amazing situation, and he walks up, and the crowd kind of surrounds him already, and he asks the scribes, what are you guys arguing about? Now, it, it, in a lot of translations, it says, what are you discussing? Well, that's the same word as what was used back in 14. It was an argument. It can be a polite discussion, but it doesn't seem like that's what's going on as much as an argument. And so Jesus asks them. Now, Initially, I would expect that the disciples would, would pipe up and say, you know, here's, here's what's going on. Those scribes are causing troubles again. Or that the scribes would jump up and say, yeah, your disciples aren't able to handle this. Or something. But notice, it's not the disciples and it's not the scribes that answer him. Who answers? The, someone from the crowd. Ultimately, we find out that it's the father, but it's someone from the crowd. One of the, one of the people who'd been watching this, this argument, watching this debate going on, pipes up and answers the question. And here's where we get into the supplication or the request. And this, this creates the biggest part of this section that we're going to be looking at. The, the situation that they've been dealing with is there's, there's this big crowd, Jesus just arrived, and what has the crowd been arguing about? Or what, what have the disciples and the scribes been arguing about? What has the crowd been watching, and what are they trying to figure out? Well, this man answers, one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. Now, we're going to get into more of the details on that in just a moment. Who did he bring the son to? to Jesus. He didn't bring him to the scribes, and he didn't bring him to the disciples, and yet they're the ones who seem to be having this argument, this debate, and the man brought his son to Jesus because he knew that Jesus had the answer. And he, he expresses to him what the situation is. Now, I, I, I find his explanation very fascinating. He's, there's no nonsense about it. He just tells him, this is exactly what's going on. Here's, here's the situation. I'm going to explain it all to you. And, and he very succinctly says, he's possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. When it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. That's a description. Now, a lot of people have taken that and tried to analyze it medically and figure out, okay, what exactly is going on? What's the, the medical issue? Well, what is the issue right here? The demon, the evil spirit, that which has possessed him. The, the other stuff is the symptoms. 
That's, that's not the underlying condition. They're, they're the symptoms, and, and the symptoms do look like certain medical things that are known today. But the actual issue, the problem is that he is possessed with a spirit. The man very, very simply tells him what's going on and what's happening. Now, we don't really know a lot about demons. Scripture doesn't give us all the information that we, we could desire about the spirit realm and what's going on with all of these things. And, and a lot of people have tried to, to dig in and figure it out and all of that, and there's a lot more hypothesis than there is actual evidence from Scripture as to what's happening. What we do know is that the spirit realm is real and that Jesus has already dealt with a lot of these over and over and over again. We see certain indications in the Old Testament and certain indications in, later in the New Testament about different things. Ultimately, um, I think that God gives us enough, and that's okay. I wish I knew more about demons and angels and the spirit realm and how all of that worked, but the, the key thing that he does tell us comes out of uh, 1 John 4.4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so I don't think that we need to know a whole lot about demons and spirits and angels and how all of that works because we know who God is. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It does seem that in Jesus' day, um, <clears throat> it was very obvious when someone was possessed with an unclean spirit as demons are often called, they, they go by a bunch of different names, unclean spirits, evil spirits, uh, demons, things of that nature. Um, in this case, the father came to Jesus with an understanding and an expectation that Jesus could do something about it. Now, we don't know all the details and all the information, and sometimes we wish we did, but Mark gives us enough to know that this man knew the issue was he was possessed with a spirit that makes him mute, that seizes him, and is causing all of these problems. Now, here in a little bit, we're going to actually get a little bit more information about it. But at this point, verse 18, the man came and he tells the disciples what's going on. Apparently, he arrived looking for Jesus, meets the disciples, and talks to them, tells them to cast it out, and they could not. Now, when I first read through this, I, my initial read was that he like demands it of the disciples. He, he tell, told them, cast it out. Maybe I just read into it a little bit. So that's why I like to slow down, go back, study it out, figure out what's actually going on. There's no demand here. He doesn't demand that they do something. He simply tells them, informs them what's going on with the understanding, with the expectation that they would be able to do something about this. Now, we have seen previously that Jesus did give his disciples the ability to cast out demons, right? He, he sent them out and told them to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. And at various points, they were able to. So what's going on now? Why aren't they able to do this? That's, that's kind of the question that is floating around trying to figure this out. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically what the scribes and disciples were arguing about. My guess is it's this. 
they're arguing about this fact that the, the disciples haven't been able to cast out the demons. And the scribes are either saying, well, this is the way it's supposed to be done, or ha, 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 you can't do this. I don't know. Like I said, that's, that's Isaac's understanding. That's, that's my read on it. But it seems that their argument is somehow related to this idea about casting out the, the demon, and they couldn't do it. They were unable now, you'll also notice, it doesn't say it, but you'll notice the scribes weren't able to cast him out either. The crowd wasn't able to cast him out. No one has been able to cast out this demon. Now, in a moment, we're going to find out that the demon's been there for a, a fairly long time, since childhood. And we're also going to find out that this, this man has been worried about him. Reasonably so. I mean, when, when a demon possesses someone and causes these kinds of symptoms, you would expect he'd be a little bit in distress and would probably look for someone that could handle this. Well, it, it does tell us that the disciples could not do it. They didn't have the ability. Now, there are a couple of different words that are used to refer to ability or power. This is one of them in which they did not have the, the strength or capability, they were powerless to be able to cast out this demon. They just, they didn't have it in them. In a minute, we're going to see a different word that's used about Jesus's ability or power or capability. And um, so bear in mind that there is a little bit of difference between those two. But the, the disciples were powerless. They're in a situation in which they can't do it. So what's your reaction when you're in a situation that you don't have the ability, you don't have the power, you're not capable of handling it. What do you do? <laughs> that's what we ought to, most definitely. That's, that's the right response. That's the right answer. Is that what the disciples did? Is that what the scribes did? Is that what the crowd did? Apparently not. It doesn't seem like it. Instead, it looks like Again, this is by Isaac's reading. It looks like they get into an argument and a debate. And they're, they're fighting back and forth about this fact that the, the disciples aren't able to. Now, like I said, it, it doesn't tell us what the scribes were arguing or how this was going, whether it was you know, any kind of, of accusation or better methods or anything like that. We're not told. We're not told what the disciples tried to do. But we are told that they weren't able to cast out this demon. Even though we had seen back in chapter 6, um, verses 12 and 13, that sure enough, they were able to. They had done this before. They had handled demon getting them out and taking care of that previously. But here, for some reason, they couldn't do it. Jesus kind of has a, this is Isaac's version, has a facepalm moment. Do, do you ever read through and you just, you, you, you think it through in your head? Like, it, it sure looks like that's, that's his answer. Verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Did, can, can you just picture, like, Bring him to me. 
Now, now, obviously, we don't see the whole thing recorded, but that's, that's the way that this is set up. Jesus asks these two questions and, and starts off with this accusation, this statement, oh, unbelieving generation. Now, who's he talking to? Who? The disciples? The crowd? The multitude? Everybody. He's talking about all of them. And that, that's what this word generation is. We've seen this, this word a few times, um, and it, it focuses on just everybody, all of them. They are unbelieving. And I think that clues us into the big point and the big thing that's going on in this passage is this issue of belief and unbelief and how that's supposed to be handled and what's supposed to be going on with it. And Jesus kind of puts his finger on it and says, here's the issue. It's a lack of belief. Now, belief is one of those things that comes up a lot. And, you know, there's, there's an idea. I don't know how many of you have seen the old movie of, of uh, it's the cartoon where Peter Pan flies around. What does it take to be able to fly? Faith and trust and a little bit of pixie dust. That's, that's the idea that often comes to mind about, about believing. It's just, I, I just believe and, and everything's going to work out perfectly and it's going to be great. That, that's not at all what Scripture describes as belief. Okay? It's not this, this fanciful wish that all of my dreams might come true. There's something else. And I think that that's what Jesus is really honing in on and focusing on. It's not just that they don't have this, this grand idea of what is belief, but specifically a belief, a reliance, a trust in God himself. And that's really what this is going to come down to, a, a reliance on him. And so we have this situation, this problem. And I, I started off by asking, okay, when, you, when you're faced with a problem and you don't know what to do, what do you do? We ought to instantly, immediately start praying. Why would we pray? Why would we do that? Because we trust that God is able to handle the situation. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? So Jesus says, bring him to me. And it, <clears throat> and they brought him, and they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, and this is another of those, when he, the spirit that we're about to look at, saw him being Jesus, so the spirit sees Jesus, what does he do? What's it say? Okay, convulsions and falling to the ground and rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Okay, now if you, if you look back a couple of verses, you'll find that this boy, this this individual, we're not actually told exactly how old he is, but this individual is possessed with a spirit. When it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, he foams at his mouth, he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. It sure looks like that's kind of what's happening here as well. He threw him into convulsions, falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Situation normal, except there is nothing normal about this. This would be terrifying. This would be very, very uncomfortable. And, and I think that that would be a reason for the crowd to be in turmoil seeing something like this happen and dealing with situations like this. 
And so Jesus asked the father, this is verse 21, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? How long had it been going on? From childhood. So that's where I, I say we're not sure how old this individual is. Oftentimes he's pointed to as being a boy, but, and, and there's a wide range of what could be being talked about, but he's never actually called a boy or a child. So this could be in his teens, early 20s. We, we don't know how old he might be. But this has been a long-term, ongoing problem ever since childhood, which is also a very indefinite phrase. It's probably since he was a very young child, like a toddler, maybe in his, his early years, but maybe up to the point that we would say school age. We're not sure. Mark doesn't record it for us because it's not required that we know. We just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, this one's only recorded in Mark as well. And so the details that we might want to know, just like with demons and angels and all of that, we would love to know more details. But that's not what God thought was important enough for us to know. So how long had this been going on? A long time. That's, that's what this phrase is telling us. Since he was a child, and we don't know how old he is. More specifically than that, though, verse 22, it has thrown him both into the fire and into the water. Now, think about that for a minute. You've got a kid that you love dearly, like this, this father loves his son, and you see him being cast into fires and waters and convulsions and foaming at the mouth and all of these things. That would be tough. That would be hard. Ultimately, we find out why the demon does this. To destroy him. That's the demon's goal. That's the, the evil spirit's purpose. And ultimately, we, we find that's always the purpose of the enemy of God, is to destroy, to cause problems. Destruction, kill, maim, and destroy is, is his modus operandi. That's his focus. Yes, sir. Well, <laughs> maybe he's putting him out. Put, putting him out, I, I we're, we're, not, we're not told exactly how this works. We're told that the purpose was to destroy him. Let's go back to the verse I quoted from 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Even though this demon was trying to kill the boy, that's, that's what destroy is, is looking at. He wasn't able to. So who is in control? Who is in power in this? God himself. There is no, no ifs, no ands, no buts about it. No doubt God is in control. And he has preserved this boy for this purpose and for this reason. And so the man brings him to Jesus, hoping for, ultimately hoping for a miracle, recognizing nobody else has been able to fix this. And, and in their time and in their culture, there were certain rituals that they would go through to try and cast out demons and certain ideas and all of that. Exorcisms were supposedly figured out and yet no one could handle this. And so the, the man brings him to Jesus and he, he has this plea, this supplication, this request. He says, if you can do anything, 
If you have the power, the ability to do anything, he says, take pity on us. Now, what is the attitude that we've seen come from Christ over and over and over again? Compassion and mercy and pity. This is exactly who Jesus is. And so the man comes to Jesus and says, have pity on us. If you can do anything, help us. Now, you'll notice he's using a plural here. He's asking for himself and for his son, both. And, and that's where I look at this and I'm like, I, I can't fathom what this father's gone through and dealt with. But he says, help us. And Jesus' response to him, if you can. And, and that's a, a fascinating, fascinating thing. I'm, I'm, I saw a couple of the ladies who've, who went to the ladies' Bible study. I think you guys talked about this a bit, right? It, it's a fascinating, amazing um, phrasing. What did, what did you all come up with? Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's there's a level of that going on. What else? What is what does Jesus do in this statement? He turns it back because he he does refer to the man, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So we go back to that idea of faith, of reliance, of, of trust, of belief. He has just called the crowd an unbelieving generation. And he turns here after the man has said, if you can do anything, and Jesus responds back to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, who actually has the ability? Who has the power to do anything? God. God himself, right? Now, in, in Sunday school, we did talk about nuance that a little bit. Is there anything God can't do? God can't lie, right? God cannot act contrary to his nature is ultimately what we, what we come up with. But the, the point, the idea is that God is able to handle any situation, any difficulty. We've already seen that this demon was not able to kill the boy because God didn't allow it. And so all things are possible. And Jesus is saying to him who believes. Again, we go to that, that question and that issue. Now, I will admit this is one of those passages that if I weren't going through this book verse by verse, step by step, I would probably avoid preaching because it gets a little bit challenging and difficult. Like, this is a passage that is, is taken out of context and misused a lot. And trying to say, well, just, just faith and trust and a little pixie dust and it's all going to work out and be great. And that's not at all what's being talked about. This is one where he's saying something a little bit different than that. Something a little bit more significant and important. All things are possible to him who believes. Like I said, it's sometimes taken out of context to mean if I just name it and claim it, God has to do everything that I say. And that is by no means what's going on. This idea of belief is not I get to determine things. It's I am trusting and relying on someone outside of myself, on someone else 
And it's the power and the ability of that on which I rely, not my own power that is at issue here. And so the man, the man has asked, if you can, take pity on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can. Ultimately, it kind of is a little bit asking a question, are you able to believe? Are you able to trust me? Are you, can, can you, do you have that ability? Immediately, this is verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is another of those, those phrases, this, this verse that is misunderstood, misapplied, pull, pulled out of context. In, in all of this that's going on, Jesus has called him to trust. Trust me, in essence, to, to trust Jesus. And the man says, I do, but I don't. But, but I do. Do you ever find yourself in that kind of a situation? When you're faced with that difficulty and that challenge and that, and what do you do when you can't, when you don't know what to do? And, and your response is, I pray. But do you ever pray like, God, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. I, help me. I think that's what this man's doing. He's saying, hey, as much as I can, I trust you, but I I'm struggling here. I'm having troubles. I, I don't know what to do. Help my unbelief. Which that, in and of itself, is a cry of belief. He's trusting that Jesus is able to help him, even with the fact that he doesn't believe he's believing Christ. And so this, this man, if you, if you look at what's going on, he's in turmoil. He's having all kinds of, of difficulties and challenges. He's at his wit's end. And what has he done? He's come to Christ. He said, hey, help me. Whatever it is that you're able to do, help, please. Now, verse 25 is a little bit surprising because Jesus doesn't immediately respond to his belief or unbelief or his, the, the man's reaction. Instead, it says that when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, now, that, that ought to sound kind of strange because it is. When they came off the mountain, what did they find? A great crowd. So the crowd was already there. So how is a crowd rapidly gathering? Well, there's a couple of ideas, a couple of options. Either, as Jesus sometimes does, he steps off to the side and kind of gets away. Possibly the crowd was re-surrounding them, gathering again. Or... It's also possible that they're in an area where there was already a great crowd and more people were coming out. And so it's, it's not contradictory to say that there was a great crowd and now a crowd's gathering. It's, it's one way or another, more and more people are showing up. And over and over and over throughout Mark, we have seen that Jesus doesn't want a lot of attention at the wrong time or in the wrong place or in the wrong way. That's why he has told them, don't you know, announce this, don't tell people about that. Don't do these things. It's not that they're not allowed to share what happened. It's just it has to be done at the right time according to Jesus' plan. And so for some reason, he doesn't want this big crowd to continue to be a big deal. And so it's not 
that he responds to the faith. It's not that he responds to the situation, though he does. I'm not, I'm not saying he doesn't, but that's not what Mark records here as the, the impetus. It's that Jesus sees the great crowd or the crowd rapidly gathering. And so I think, and, and this is Isaac's conclusion, just be aware. This is, I think that Jesus has been going through a little bit of his teaching process, explaining what faith is, explaining what trusting and relying on God is, in his way and in his timing. And the time for that has wrapped up because the crowds are all gathering and he doesn't want them to catch the the wrong parts of it at the end or anything like that. And so he says, all right, we're going to continue on and heal. And he's going to take care of business. And he has just finished teaching, what is faith? What is it to believe? And I think this man gets it because there at the end of verse 24, he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. It's a cry out that even in my inability to trust you, help me trust you because only you are worthy of trust. And so that's what this man has done, understanding the lesson that Jesus is teaching. And so Jesus says, uh, when he saw the crowd rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Jesus Kicks him out and gives him no opportunity for returning. What happens? Does, does Jesus have the ability to do that? Okay. Because the, the man asked, if you can, take pity on us and help us. So what did, what, what's the result? What happens? Okay. Demon obeys and what? Try, tries to take uh, one, last, one last shot, but ultimately the demon obeys, right? After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, one parting shot trying to, I, I think really trying to destroy the, the boy, trying to kill him, even still, even now when Jesus is on the, uh, in control of the situation, has commanded him to get out, the demon is, does not want to give up. But is he able even now to, is, is the demon able even now to destroy the boy? Makes it look like it. Um, it says, throw him into terrible convulsions, and it came out. And the boy became much, so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. That's what had already been happening. That's what the demon had been trying to do to kill this, this person, this boy, this lad. And yet, he wasn't able to. In all of the previous attempts, and even in this parting shot, this demon could not do it. So Jesus, verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And there's, there's a lot of comparison to, to when Jesus raises someone from the dead as well. And so the crowd thinks he's dead, but it doesn't tell us that the boy was actually dead. Jesus just raises him. And he got up. And it, it gives the impression that everything is made right. Everything is better. The boy is healed. The demon is gone. The demon is, is commanded never to come back, never to get back in. And so this, this issue, this problem, this situation has been handled. The exorcism has taken place. Everything's good. And that would be a great place for the, the, the episode the series to end right there. 
but it doesn't. We've got a couple more verses because Jesus is always teaching. Even though he was, he was teaching this man about what belief is and what faith is and, and what it is to trust, even when you don't know what to do, even when you're in a terrible situation, Jesus was helping him understand that his belief, his reliance on God was very, very important. Now we have the disciples. It says, when he came into the house, again, we're not given details. We don't know what house. We don't even know what town they're at right now. They get into a house. When they're inside, the, the disciples come up and ask privately. Now, again, this is where I think that they were having a bit of an argument with the scribes about what they were supposed to do, how it was supposed to work, all of that kind of a thing. And I suspect, to a little extent, the, the disciples are kind of licking their wounds because they were made fools of. They tried to cast this demon out, and they couldn't. They weren't able to. And so they ask, they go back to him, why could we not drive it out? Why didn't we have the ability? What, what's going on? It's a reasonable question for them to ask, because previously they had been able to. And so they, they should have been able to cast out the demon. They should have known what to do, and yet for some reason their process didn't work. Now, we're not told what the process was or how they would go about casting out demons or anything else. We are told that it didn't work, that they weren't able to. And so they're asking. They want to find out, like, what, what's going on? Jesus answers them, verse 29. He said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, like I said, we're not, we're not told a lot of the details of this discussion or how everything went, but Jesus really points back to exactly what he'd already been teaching the, the man and talking about with that crowd of this reliance, this requirement to believe in God. What, what is prayer? What is prayer? Okay, why would you converse with God? Because you know that he's able. Because you know that he's got the answers. Because you want to interact with him. And so I think that Jesus is continuing to teach the same idea that belief, that faith, that reliance, not just belief in whatever you want to, but belief in God himself and his abilities and his plans and his statements, that that's what is key. And that the only way that they would be able to cast out these demons, ultimately for us, the only way that we can do anything that God wants us to is by relying on him, by trusting him, by believing him, by prayer, by going to him. Now, I, I do want to take a moment. There is a, what's called a textual variant, and I don't, I don't want to go on a, a very long rabbit trail, but I do know there are some versions that say by prayer and fasting, Right? and others that just say by prayer. What is fasting? Going, going for a time without food so you can pray. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that much. This is one of those, Mark has several textual variances where different translations say something a little bit different, and there's a lot of reasons behind that. And we could go into a very, very long rabbit trail, and I'm intentionally not if you're interested and you want to talk about it, come see me. I'll, I'll help you understand all that's going on there. The point, it doesn't matter in this one, 
because either it's by prayer or by prayer and fasting, either way, what was necessary? They had to go to God. They had to put their focus on him, their trust in him, their reliance on him. Now, that's all really, really neat and great. We don't know a lot about demons and the spirit realm and how all of that works and operates. And we don't necessarily aren't going to face a situation like this where we're called on to cast out demons. I don't, I don't really see that as happening uh, as a major thing in today's realm. Um, that was something that Jesus did quite a bit of. That was something that he had his, his disciples do. Don't necessarily think that that's something for us. But this idea of serving God, of doing whatever it is that he might call us to do, has to be started on and founded on this, this concept of prayer. This concept, this idea of believing in God. Mark doesn't highlight this, but I think that there's something that we, we need to notice. Um, last week, if you did some pre-study, then you know that, that the transfiguration was recorded in multiple books, right? Uh, Matthew talks about it, Mark talks about it, Luke talks about it. And in Luke chapter 9, when he's dealing with this, the reason that Jesus went up onto the mountain, did anybody look that up and happen to, to remember off the top of your head? Why did Jesus go up on the mountain, according to Luke 9.29? To pray. To pray. How many times throughout the gospel do we see Jesus going off early in the morning to pray? Or spending the night in prayer? In that passage, verse 32 says something about what the disciples were doing. This is an open book test, so if you want to open it up, you're welcome to. But what, what do you think that the disciples were doing? While Jesus goes up to pray, Peter, James, and John, what happened with them? Were they praying too? They were overcome with sleep. Now, whether they were completely out or not, uh, or just really, really tired, Jesus goes up to pray, and they fall asleep. Now, before you get too hard on yourself, I fully understand after a long, long, hard day, you, you're quiet down, you sit down to pray, and you fall asleep. It happens. But with the disciples, we actually see this happen multiple times. Jesus goes to pray, and they go to sleep. This, this idea that Jesus expresses here, I think, given what Luke tells us, when we find in, at the end of Mark 9, for, uh, Mark 9, verse 29, when Jesus says this can only come out by prayer, this kind, and, and again, I'm not getting into all the details about demons and what kinds there are, anything like that. When, when Jesus says only by prayer, I think what he's talking about is this regular, continuous attitude and relationship of dependence and reliance on God. And so, we come to the so what. It's a really neat passage, really fascinating, some interesting things going on. If you slow down and you dig into it and you, you start trying to figure out what's going on, it, it's just very fascinating and it also has a lot, of, a lot of questions that we don't have all the details to. I started off this morning asking you, what do you do when you don't know what to do? 
and many of you got the right answer, pray. That, that is what we ought to do. But see, Jesus actually went up onto the mountain to pray, and the disciples kind of don't always. They, they fall asleep quite a bit. They get distracted. I probably should have asked, what is the regular basis, whether you know what you do, what, what to do or not? When you face anything, what is your reaction? What do you do? Now, this passage obviously deals with the surpassing power of Christ, the necessity of faith. It, it continues the progression of Jesus as he's getting ready to head to the cross. There's a lot going on here. But I think that one of the major takeaways for us is to realize that Jesus was constantly finding time to pray, to commune with God, to interact with him. Even as he's about ready to go to the cross, we're going to see eventually that's one of the last things that he does before all of the persecution and difficulties and things that he faces is he goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. In so doing, he knows what's going on. He knows that he has to depend on the Father. When the man cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief, he was expressing that same kind of a dependence on Christ for the ability to depend on him. Now, whether the disciples had become overconfident or they hadn't learned a lesson or whatever the issue was, Christ points out that they did not have that kind of a relationship with God. They weren't depending on him, turning to him, praying like they ought to. So I want to leave you with a, a quote. I found this some time ago. I don't actually know who it's from, um, but I have a, a note that hangs above my desk that reminds me of this idea and it, it's kind of what I want to leave you with to, to ponder. If we see how Christ operates and what Christ does, and we see that he is telling this man, God is able to do everything. All things are possible for him who believes and trusts and relies on him. This, this is a good reminder to me. It says, watch the morning watch. Do not see the face of man until you have seen the face of God. Before you enter the day with its temptations, look up into his face and hide his word in your heart. What is our reaction when we don't know what to do? What do we do on a daily basis? I would challenge you, and I challenge myself too, because I'm not perfect at it, that the very first thing that we ought to do is pray, is exercise this idea of belief, to put our trust and our reliance on God and allow him to work in us and through us before we come to any of these problems and difficulties and situations and whatever it is that we might face. I would contest that what Jesus is telling his disciples here in verse 29 is that the reason they couldn't drive it out wasn't that they didn't stop in that moment to pray, but because their attitude and their lifestyle was not like his. And they've been following him, and they, they ought to know these things. We are a church, and we ought to know these things. And yet how often do we not have that constant, regular idea and mindset of prayer? 
of going to God, of before we do anything else, knowing him. Something to think about. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, prayer is an amazing thing. We don't fully understand it. We don't fully comprehend why you, the God of the universe, wants to know what's on our hearts and our minds. And yet that's what you call us to do. And I think here in this passage we see a glimpse of why. It's an exercise of faith. It's an opportunity to trust you, to bring our burdens to you, to lay them down, relying on you. And even as this man cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, the fact that we come to you even when we don't know and we have questions and we have challenges and we don't, we're at a loss. Lord, help us to turn to you first before all else. Help us to make that a regular part of our day and of our life. To believe you because with you all things are possible. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you that you allow us such an amazing privilege of coming boldly before you. May we do it more and more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.